the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 21, Episode 19. Artificial Intelligence and Cardiovascular Medicine. In conversation with Professor Dr. Colin Stultz. Our guest today is the Nina T. and Robert H. Rubin Professor of Medical Engineering and Science, Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, Co-Director, Harvard-MIT, Division of Health Sciences and Technology, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine, Massachusetts General Hospital. Welcome to the show, Colin. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Colin, please take a moment and tell us about yourself. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a professor of electrical engineering, computer science at MIT, and a cardiologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital. My background's a little eclectic is probably a better, better word. I maintain a clinical practice at Mass General in the area of general cardiology, and my scientific interests are at the intersection of AI, machine learning, and cardiovascular care. We are really interested in, and when I say we, I'm referring to my my research group, the talented students, postdocs, and scholars, which I have had the privilege to interact with over the over the years, is providing clinically useful tools that will help with clinical decision making and personalized medicine. As an aside, I should say, of the many things that I'm expected to do, two young kids, uh-huh. beautiful children, a uh, wonderful and caring wife. I'm very, very privileged in that way. I have a fulfilling professional life and a very busy and rewarding personal life at home. So it's like my career, it's an eclectic response, but, but it is it is accurate. Well, Colin, thank you for the great work that you do. And in our conversation today, you'll be sharing with us, with the listeners, cutting edge discoveries that, that you and your team have made. But it seems that everywhere we turn these days, we're hearing about artificial intelligence. Of course, MIT has been at the forefront of research in the field of AI. Can you tell us about your work in the field of artificial intelligence? I think just to take a step back, even the most cursory review of the popular press would suggest that artificial intelligence is going to cure all of man's ills. And, and simultaneously causes tremendous ruin. Mm-hmm. And like most things in life, the truth is in the middle. And if anything gets imparted from, from this colloquy that we have is the sweet spot that artificial intelligence has in, the, in cardiovascular care, more generally in the care of, of people who are ill. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't begin with sort of some general definitions to make sure that we all are working from the same lexicon. Mm-hmm. So artificial intelligence refers to a class of methods that try to impart intelligence to machines. And, and that definition has always been a little bit not very satisfying to me because it uses the term intelligence both in a term one wants to define and also intelligence in the definition. But insofar as we have some innate understanding of what the word intelligence means, I think it's, it's, it's somewhat satisfactory. There is a subset of methods within this field of artificial intelligence called machine learning, 
And machine learning is a class of methods that aspire to have machines learn from data. And that is where a lot of the work in my group has been. So to put this in the context, when someone goes to their physician, and in this case, a, a cardiologist, and they have a problem with the heart, then the cardiologist can use information that they've learned in medical school and that they've gone into their career about the cardiovascular system. There are things that we know how the heart responds. We know where the heart pumps blood to. We know how what the fit properties of the failing heart, if the pressures in the heart are too high, we have a sense of the heart and the kidneys and other organs we have an understanding about. But in instances, there are many instances in which we don't know and we don't have a full understanding of the disease process. And moreover, we don't know how the disease will go with a particular patient. Not every patient's body reads the same textbook. Mm -hmm. There are some people who follow the textbook and some people who don't. And I think that's the sweet spot for machine learning because we can, in instances where there is considerable uncertainty, we can learn from the data, no suppositions, no background with respect to what the uh, any preconceived notions about what the physiology is. And we can use the data to try to personalize diagnosis and therapy for a given patient. And that has been the core of what, what, what our work has been. I'm trying to use easily obtained data over data sets of, of patients and try to generate data that are applicable for an individual patient's care. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. Colin, give us a sense of AI-assisted diagnostics. For instance, patient comes to your office at Massachusetts General. Short of breath, they're, they show some classic cardiovascular injury signs. What kind of diagnostics are available today through machine learning to diagnose that particular patient's condition? that weren't available to you five years ago or even 10 years ago? It's a great question. And I think we're kind of at the cusp of our development. When I say our collectively as a community and the individuals who work, work in this space, a lot of the latest and most exciting developments are still in the phase of being tested to determine how valid they are across wide cohorts. It's a lot of, it's an exciting time. It's sort of at the initial stages where we're learning who these methods are most appropriate for and the power in which, and the power that they have to aid with both diagnosis and, and therapy. So I'll give you a few, a few case in points. Mm -hmm. A patient that comes in with some of the symptoms that you described, they have shortness of breath, they have low extremity swelling, and we or just even the shortness of breath. I mean, we want to understand why that's why that's the case. And there are a number of studies we can do. We can get the uh, laboratory studies to help sort this out. We could get chest x-rays to, to sort this out. We could do an electrocardiogram. And in many instances, those findings are dispositive, but they aren't always. And it's always the edge cases that are problematic. Mm -hmm. If somebody comes in and have very classic symptoms, they have a history of cardiac disease, those patients really don't need AI for. Mm -hmm. It's the patients who are problematic in which you really don't know. Moreover, I would say that in a place, uh, in a tertiary care center like Mass General, patients have a panoply of different studies that, that their healthcare provider can ask for. Cardiac ultrasound, also known as an echocardiogram. That's where you take pictures of the heart, mm -hmm. kind of akin to when we take pictures of uh, someone who's pregnant 
and you can take uh, pictures of the baby moving around. You can take pictures of the heart moving in the chest to get a sense of what the heart function is. We have cardiac MRI, which is another example of, of a test that we can routinely order on patients. But somebody who has symptoms consistent with heart failure, and you're not sure, mm-hmm. who is in an environment that's in a resource poor setting, that doesn't have access to these things. I think that is the place with the greatest yield of these methods. Can you get that information from simple things like an electrocardiogram? Mm-hmm. Where you you know stickers, electrodes on the chest, and you get some information about the electrical activity within the heart. Can that information, which is very, which does not require a specialist, does not require any special technology, any mm-hmm. special methods, to get a sense of whether this patient has a diagnosis in question. And so, so I think that the really the biggest gains of this, of, of this technology, is in those settings where one has access to limited resources, and you can use low lying data. By low lying data, what I mean is a low lying fruit data that are easy to acquire to help in the diagnosis and, and the prognosis. And there are studies to say that you can get at such information in terms of the heart function information that you would get from a cardiac ultrasound, just from the electrocardiogram. Mm-hmm. You can AI can be applied to chest X-rays to determine whether there's a lot of fluid on board, as opposed to whether it's something else that's causing the um, shortness of breath. And in heart failure, you typically have a lot of fluid that is present on on the chest X-ray. So I think these are some of the very broad examples. I think where AI has great promise. Before we move on to predictive analytics, obviously you're a very busy man. You're a professor at MIT. You're also a cl- clinician at Massachusetts General Hospital, which of course is the largest trauma center in the greater Boston area. How do you balance your time between the demands of your students and the classroom and the laboratory and the demands of your practice and your patients at Mass General? How do you do that? Are there enough hours in the day, Colin? You know, I wish I knew how I did. (laughs) I just know it gets done. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's probably the most honest answer that I can provide. What I, what I tell my students is that you make time for things that are important, and life is about priorities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we uh, there are my patients that are priorities to me. Very, They are very high on the priority list. They're on my students, people in my research group who are like my, my extended family. And there's my own family at home. Yes. And so there's some things that we set being here in the morning when my kids get up for breakfast and seeing them to bed at night are two things that are not negotiable. Mm-hmm. It's you know not absolute. There are times if I have to travel and such, that's not the case. But those are priorities for me. And I think as you try to prioritize things and the priorities can change from week to week, even from day to day, you make it work because you have to, because it's really important to you. That's my guiding principle. Now let's move on to predictive analytics and the capabilities that machine learning, artificial intelligence, brings to the table in terms of predictive analytics, because that, of course, again, in the field of cardiovascular health, where we all will benefit from predictions. In the case where someone is going down a certain path, you do an analysis, the predictions show that if you continue on this path, this is the what may happen, as opposed to, opposed to the alternatives. Tell me about the impact of AI on predictive analytics. Is it revolutionary? Without question. Medicine at its core is, in terms of its goals, are simplistic. We want to make people live longer and have good quality of life. We want to alleviate their suffering. 
And in that vein, there are some people who will live long and not have a significant number of ailments. And those individuals, you still want to monitor, but you don't need to invest a lot of resources in them. Mm-hmm. Virtually all or most of medicine is about knowing who's going to be really sick, knowing where you're going to invest your resources and who you should really watch out for. And in medicine, and specifically cardiovascular medicine, we are, don't do a great job of it. So we, we have some markers that identify patients who are at a very high risk of adverse outcomes. And those are kind of somewhat no-brainers. But a lot of the patients with traditional metrics that we classify as being low risk, they actually have a lot of events. Mm-hmm. So there's a very small number of patients that we classify as being very high risk. Most patients are classified as being not high risk. But because that population is so large, most of the events that we see in clinical practice come from those not high-risk patients, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. just because a number of, the number of patients there is large. So being able to predict who is at high risk and, moreover, when they're at high risk, what's the appropriate intervention is paramount. And that is an aspect of what, in my view, AI, predictive analytics, machine learning can contribute to this. And I would be remiss if I did not comment on the ability to be able to do this at home. So we have all carry around, uh, many people carry around smartphones. Yes. And smartphones collect a great deal of information about us. That, you know, how the steps that you take when you're active, when you're, when you're not active. There are now devices either pocket devices or wearable devices that can record an electrocardiogram. I think this is one of the things about the Apple Watch. Absolutely. I have one of those little cardia monitors that I use every morning. It's amazing. It's amazing. Life has changed a lot in the last few decades. And can we leverage those data to be able to do predictive analytics in the home environment, not just in the hospital? I think that is the huge, that is the big payday, the big payday for these methods. Can you detect when somebody is going to, is at high probability of having an adverse outcome just from these simple things that are acquired passively from the phone, occasionally getting an electrocardiogram to determine whose heart function is getting worse? And work in my group in particular in the last few years has been in patients that have a diagnosis of heart failure. Can you use signals like this to determine what's going on inside the chest? What are the pressures in the heart something that you normally would acquire with an invasive study by mm-hmm. putting a catheter into the heart to measure the pressures. Can you do that with simple signals obtained from the smartphone? When the pressures are high, somebody needs to seek out a healthcare provider to be treated for it before they have an adverse event. So I think that is really, the, I think one in my lifetime, I, I think that this will be a reality, that these sorts of devices will become a, uh, an important piece of the cardiovascular care of patients with a broad panoply of disorders. Colin, give us a sense of the profile of the men and women who are part of your team. Give us a sense of their their educational background and just who are the men and women who work with you, who come to you with this, these discoveries and with this fundamental research work? It's, I'm, I'm glad that you bring this up because one of the things that I am proudest of across my uh, professional career, outside of my personal life and my, and my kids and my beautiful wife, is the ability to gather some of the most talented scholars around 
And not only are they talented scholars, but they're actually good people as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of my uh, students are uh, PhD students in computer science department at MIT. There, we have in, in the uh, HST, Harvard MIT program in health sciences and technology, we have a very talented group of students who aspire to work at the intersection of medicine and the quantitative sciences. And there are some students along those lines. So most of the people in my group come from purely quantitative backgrounds and learn the clinical aspects that are important along the way through their interactions in my research group. There are cardiology fellows and residents at the Massachusetts General Hospital that occasionally we engage with and particularly or my, some of my colleagues as well attending physicians at, uh, at uh, MGH. And they usually are paired with the computer scientists or medical engineer and medical physics PhD student in my group. And they work sort of as a team, bouncing information off of one another. The challenging thing about working in this space is you have to sort of be a jack of two trades. You have to know the important problems in the cardiovascular space and have mm -hmm. a sense of the techniques and the methods that are most appropriate to solve the question at hand. And that typically entails people with separate expertise that come together and it's in a synergistic relationship. Now, your own background, you have a fascinating resume. On the one hand, you have a PhD in biophysics from Harvard University, and you also attended Harvard Medical School. So you are a doctor. You are a in addition to being a PhD doctor, you're also a medical doctor. So you bring together those two disciplines uniquely, I would guess. I, I guess that's what you're referring to. Obviously, many of the uh, many of the researchers who are working with you are coming at this discipline with uh, with an EECS background, electrical engineering, computer science, as opposed to a medical background. But you bring the two together, which I guess, which of course gives you a unique perspective to a the, the technical data that these that the that your team is giving you against the cl clinical data that you as a cardiologist have been trained to analyze i like to think that's that is a that is a, a unique aspect that the individuals i've been honored to mentor gained from their interactions interactions with me it's sort of interesting so i began my career as a physical chemist and always don't want to do cardiology, but early on we did a lot of studies and looking at simulations of biomolecules using a lot of computational techniques. But I realized at some point that these, while this work was very interesting, I wasn't going to be able to see any benefit to the patients that I see with this sort of work. And so we gradually, from like 2005 and, and on, started to work more in areas where I thought it was realistic for me to see some real benefit to the patients that, you know, that I have, have cared for. You know, when you, when you see your, a patient, especially a young patient who is very ill, and they, these memories are hard to kind of get away from. And, and they motivate you to do something that is actually going to be beneficial to them. So that was the that was the reason for the switch. And in physical chemistry, most of the things that we did are very computational. I didn't really do much in the way of experiments. It was all calculations. Mm -hmm. And so making the switch over on the machine learning side was was very natural. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about precision medicine, because again, the field of cardiovascular medicine, it's all about precision. Tell me about the effects of 
artificial intelligence on precision medicine. Is medicine, particularly in the cardiovascular field, is it becoming more tailored to the unique circumstances of patient A versus patient B? Tell me about precision medicine and what does it mean? It's a, it, it's a great question. Uh, typically, when we care for patients in, with cardiovascular disease, we rely on a panoply of clinical studies that we have in the literature. Uh, you have a sense of what is the medical, appropriate medical regimen for somebody with heart failure and a type of heart failure called heart failure with reduced ejection fraction based on a number of study th- numbers a number of studies involving thousands of patients the problem is that most of the patients that a clinician sees in, in practice would never have been enrolled in any of those studies mm-hmm. because those, those studies are highly selected and people have multi- a multitude of problems that would have precluded them from being enrolled in these studies so we have to extrapolate we say this is the data i don't know how it applies to you but over a wide cohort it seems to do well so I'm going to assume you fit into this cohort and give you, and in many instances, that's that's sufficient. But when you talk about an individual patient, every medication has a risk. Mm-hmm. And the, the essential question is, what's the risk of this patient if I don't give the medication, as opposed to what's the risk if I, risk-benefit analysis if they do get it? And that's an individualized statement. And I think that the promise of ML is that it can use that patient's specific history, their specific demographics, their response to other medications. And if you know their genotype, you can use that, you know, if you sort of sequence the number of their genes, let's say, you can use that information as well. You can use all different types of data to get a specific profile for that patient. And then you can build models to kind of assess the risk based on that particular patient profile. And you can use that to make very informed decisions. It's not like in this study, the risk of this medication was the bad consequence was X. And you don't know how that X or that Y cohort applies to the patient who sits in front of you. But with personalized medicine, you can use the specific information from that patient to assess their risk and do a thoughtful analysis of the risk-benefit analysis for any particular medication. And I think that is a great, it's kind of one of the holy grails of cardiovascular medicine, dare I say, all, all of medicine. Mm-hmm. Colin, of course, you're, you practice at Massachusetts General Hospital that we referred to at the outset of this conversation. Tell us about Massachusetts General. It is a public hospital. That is correct, yes. Much in the way that San Francisco General Zuckerberg Chan is a public hospital. Tell us about what it's like to work there, the patients that you get to see there. And again, I just want to underscore, particularly for our listeners who are in Europe, who who have socialized medicine, all hospitals are public. It's different here in the United States. Give us a profile of Massachusetts General, please, for the benefit of all of our listeners. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I am biased. I, I am very proud to be associated with the Mass, Massachusetts General Hospital. I, I am I'm very fond, dare I say, love my colleagues because one of the things that keeps us all together is that we are all concerned with the care of the patients in front of us. And I've seen individuals who have scholarly pursuits like myself and mm-hmm. they're when a patient sits in front of them, they're just as dedicated as a physician who takes care of patients all the time. It's a quaternary care center, which means that we run the full panoply of, of patients in the cardiovascular space. 
So patients that have are referred for very not very serious problems to those who are quite, quite ill. We do a number of heart transplants mm. per year. We do the full pan of, of so if you know, we can deal with pretty much any cardiovascular problem that can that, that can arise. And so you, you, you see the gamut as a, as a healthcare provider there. And it's a, it's a great environment for clinicians. It's very rewarding. I like to think that the patients who go there and who are treated by the um, Division of Cardiology are um, overall, I think they have a good experience there. I've met many patients who've had great experiences and good, out, good outcomes there. I, you know, I don't want to gush too much, but, but I do. I'm, I'm a fan of the institution, a fan of the place. No place is perfect, of course. But the but the MGH is 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 a is a great place to work, and I, actually I think it's a great place to be a patient as well. Mm-hmm. Colin, if you had a, a crystal ball, three to five years out, given how quickly artificial intelligence seems to be developing and being adopted, where do you see AI taking us, particularly in the field of cardiovascular care? What are some of the directions? that patients who are perhaps in their 30s or 40s today, they, they might, they may get to experience in the next 10 years or so that, that don't really exist today? It's, it's a good question. I, I will say as a somewhat parenthetical statement, the, the great thing about AI and ML today is that there, it's, we have many, many individuals who are, have access to tools. A lot of the tools to build the models and to, are available online. And you can take them off the shelf and you can train these models to do things. That's a great thing. A, a bad thing is that we have many individuals and many models and you can take one off the shelf and you could train it to do many things, right? So it's the pluses and minuses in, in, in both of those things because I think a lot of the models and the things that are being built always, aren't always being done in a thoughtful way. And that is one impediment to making this thing. These really useful at the, at the end of the day. And places where I see as low-lying fruit, I think I've alluded to before, is, and I think probably in the next five years, we will see much more in the way of healthcare at home, more tools that will let an individual know if they really have to go into the hospital or not for particular perceived malady mm-hmm. in the cardiovascular space. Those with very bad cardiovascular disease and heart failure in particular, and I say this because it's a specific interest of mine, I think there'll be more tools in the in-home setting to help them understand where, how sick they are. It can be very hard to know exactly how sick you really are mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons in heart failure and when you should seek medical attention or not. Moreover, I think there will be it'll be easier to sort of manage patients in outpatient settings. So there'll be a select group of patients who ordinarily today would have to go into the hospital to be managed. But because of these new tools, a lot of the management will happen in the home setting through some of these AI and ML-directed directed algorithms. Mm-hmm. Colin, I'm sure many of our listeners, particularly our younger listeners who are, who are listening to your work and the team that you, teams that you work with, what would you say to a young man or woman today who who wants to follow that route, who who wants to who wants to become a researcher, say for instance, in this field? What would you? What advice? What counsel would you give them today? It's a great question, and I, I think I see two. You know, some some individuals who say I want to do this, and so I want to learn how to code, and and I want to take a programming class, and 
learn how to do these different these different methods and build artificial neural networks and fancy machine learning models. But in this particular space, the hardest thing is not necessarily building the models. In part, a lot of these techniques for straightforward problems are off the shelf and you can you can build them. It's really understanding what is the important question to ask mm -hmm. and what is really going to affect clinical care. So what's a lot harder is, is getting those insights. And the more that one can spend time with healthcare providers, those who actually treat patients, specifically with cardiovascular disease, the more likely going to be able to do something that is really impactful. Colin, on a personal note, what do you do in your spare time? I, I guess you probably don't have a lot of spare time, but what do you do in your spare time away from the hospital, away from MIT and Harvard? I'm sorry, use the term I'm not familiar with. What was that? It began with an S. I can't. <laughs> Spare time. I, again, I didn't expect you to tell me that you have much of it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to assume, I'm going to extrapolate as to what that term means. Yes. As I may have mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm a homebody. And when I am not working, I like to be, I like to be home. I like Disney movies with my kids. Mm -hmm. I love a good baseball game. Mm -hmm. or, you know, sitting and watching a movie with the wife. I, I don't need much to be happy in the off time. And I think baseball, movies with the kids, playing with them outside, that's me. Well, Colin, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts for our listeners with regard to artificial intelligence, cardiovascular, where we are today, where we're headed in the future? The future is bright. The future is bright and there is work going on all across the sphere. I like to think that my research group is on the cutting edge. There are uh, others who are working and doing very exciting work, some exciting work at the Mayo Clinic, for example. And I think that the future has yet to be determined, but what is clear is that it'll be better. Well, Colin, on that note, how can our listeners follow you? You know, it's good. You know, I, I am not huge on social media. <laughs> so I think I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure I have a social media presence, but I am an easy one to find between the lectures on YouTube, mm -hmm. um, my group web page that often has um, updates at, at MIT. So I think the um, that's probably the best way to keep abreast of what of the work that we're doing. So your group webpage at MIT would probably be a good place for, for listeners to kind of keep track of what you're doing and what your team is doing in this very innovative area. Absolutely. Well, once again, Colin, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. A very inspirational conversation today uh, where you brought together a great deal of technical background, but the passion and the commitment that you obviously have to your students to your researchers, to your patients, most importantly, to your family, came through loud and clear. Again, we really appreciate you sharing your precious time with us today and look forward to staying in touch and maintaining this dialogue into the future. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 424. Listen to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, 18 platforms in total. And remember to subscribe and join our listener audience in 65 countries. Today's artificial intelligence episode is part of our ongoing series exploring the impact of artificial intelligence technology 
on our society. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.